0: It is such an honor and a privilege to be here this morning. And I do know in which town I am today. So (laughs) (laughs) even though it is true, I am traveling quite a bit. And uh, sometimes when I wake up in the mornings, I have to remind myself, where am I again? (laughs) But it is truly a pleasure to be here. And I am just so thankful to God that uh, God is still using me in ministry. And, and that feels just great, because I have a pastor's heart. And when I was defrocked in December of 2013, um, my heart sank. Um, and I thought my, my ministry had come to an end. Um, but God had a different view on that. And so I'm here today to speak to you, bring you greetings in, in the name of my family. Some of them are here this morning, my wife, my son, Tim, and his partner. Um, But I bring you greetings from all of my children, other children as well. Um, I always say we are a true LGBT family because half of us are gay and half of us are straight. I have three gay children, four altogether. Uh, So some things are different in in LGBT families like ours. For instance, uh, you know, our first three children are gay. So we always wondered about our fourth child, Pascal. We always wondered, is he gay? Is he straight? Is he gay? What's going on with him? Until he finally uh, came out. And he probably had to come out as the only person in the history of ever having to come out as straight. (laughs) And he did so, curiously, on Facebook. You know, It was the weirdest thing. But it is truly a joy to be here this morning. When I heard that you have a series on on the book of Acts, uh, I thought, well, that's great. I have a passage I love uh, in the book of Acts, and it's the one that was read here this morning. And of course, it is the one where, where Peter really is tested. Um, Jesus always taught us that we have to draw the circle wider. Even when we think we have drawn it wide enough, Jesus encourages us to draw it even wider, to include ultimately everybody in our circle. Because the truth is that we are all God's beloved children, no matter who we are. We are all God's beloved children. And until all of God's children have found a place in our circle, in our churches, in our hearts, we're not there yet. So here is Peter. What I love about Peter is that he gets so many things wrong even though he is the one that Jesus Said upon you The rock I will build my church Uh, But he gets so many things wrong and it's so encouraging because if if such a high-profile disciple Gets things wrong then maybe we're allowed to get things wrong at times as well and we can certainly learn from that but simply put Peter's world before he received this vision, um, is neatly divided into three groups. First of all, there are Christians. Of course, they have the full salvation. Then there are Jewish believers who have the potential to receive full salvation by the Messiah, by Jesus Christ. And then there were Gentiles who, in Peter's view, cannot receive salvation oddly enough you know humans have always struggled and we still are struggling uh, with exclusion with issues of exclusion dealing with cultural differences there's a very smart author by the name of samuel huntington who in his book the clash of civilizations argues that perceived cultural differences are rooted in three things. First of all, a feeling of superiority toward people who are perceived as being different. Secondly, a fear of and lack of trust in such people. And thirdly, he says, a lack of familiarity with the assumptions, motivations, social relationships, and social practices of the Other people and Peter was certainly no stranger to Huntington's suggestions the question is why didn't Peter learn anything from Jesus Jesus did not only not avoid those who were cast aside by society and religious leadership but he went out of his way to seek out the lepers and all those who were considered untouchable. He sought out the Samaritans and all those who were considered infidels. He sought out women and children and all those who were considered voiceless in first century Judean society. He actually also sought out sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, and all those who were considered unlovable. And he even sought out Canaanites and Gentiles and all those who were considered enemies of Israel. Jesus' message is always challenging and stretching us, and that's why I love Jesus so much. He reaches out to every single person. His circle is complete and includes all of God's children. But God in his infinite goodness is patient with Peter and arranges for this dream, for this vision. And in this vision, Peter sees all kinds of of foods that are unkosher and In in this dream, he hears the voice from God saying, kill and eat. And he says, no way, God. I'm not going to eat unkosher food. I never have and never will. And God says, don't call unclean what I have made. What I have made clean. I believe this vision, this dream Peter had, was very much necessary for him to be able to say yes, to go along with, this, with these servants that were sent by the centurion Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman official and soldier. And as he follows these servants into the house of Cornelius, he experiences something that is very surprising to Peter he sees how the Holy Spirit descends upon these Gentile believers. And they become Christians. And that just doesn't fit into Peter's world view at this point in time. But this is the experience that changed Peter. And you know, it's interesting, the personal experience of how People come out to us in this day and age as being gay. And they may be our children, or they may be our cousins, or they may be friends. But that is actually making a difference today. This is what changes America, and this is what changes our world society today. The personal testimony of people. Because as we see as we witness the holy spirit working within the lives of the others that we have formerly excluded they become part of our circle part of the circle of god it's actually what happened to me as well you know i've uh, actually grown up as and i'm going to come closer to you here I've actually grown up in in a Baptist church. It wasn't an American Baptist Church, it was actually a a German Baptist Church. and uh, and i was I was raised to believe that homosexuality is a sin. And so that's what I believed as a young man until I met a person who was homosexual. My first openly homosexual person I meet, And I had a talk with him, and I thought to myself, well, he isn't evil. And for the very first time, I noticed that there was something odd about the teaching of the church. And it took a long development in me, and it took seminary studies, but nothing changed me as much as when my son Tim came out to us. And many of you know how the story unfolded, that my son Tim, whose faith had always been very important to him. I remember him playing church with the stuffed animals and preaching to his stuffed animals when we came home from church. He was very active in, in, in our church. He was, he was a leader in the, in the youth group. He preached on youth Sundays. He went with us to prison ministries. He played his instruments on the worship team. Faith had always been so important. And one day, being the good PK that he was, the good pastor's kid, he went with me to an annual conference. Can you believe it? It just so happened in that year, there was a debate on the floor about homosexuality. And it was a very fierce debate. And what my son Tim took away from that, from what he was hearing, was that his own church was saying that he can't be saved and homosexual at the same time. He was about 13 years old at the time. He was already struggling with the sexual orientation. And so he started to, to pray to God very sincerely, often crying himself to sleep at night, saying, God, please make me normal. I don't want to be this way. And when that didn't happen, my son considered suicide many times. He had a plan in place. And it was only because he had one girlfriend that he could confide in, that he was prevented from doing that. And, and this, the mother of this girlfriend called me up in the office and said, Reverend Schaefer, you need to hear this. Your son is struggling with his sexual orientation. He's gay and he's considering suicide. So when my son came out to my wife and I and shared all of this, and shared all of the depression he had gone through, the darkness he had been, to think that he might not be saved, that he might somehow be outside of the salvation of God, and how it tortured him. We just just fell around his neck, dissolved in tears, and we hugged him and said to him, we love you so much, Tim, and that's never going to change. And then we started to think, and, and we said, you know, this is nothing that you chose. You didn't want to be homosexual. So what this means, this is evidence for the fact that this is no choice. This is the way God has created you to be, gay and all. And it took my son many years before he could accept himself for the person that God had created him to be a beautiful gay man. So when my son Tim asked me in the year 2006 when he called me on the phone and said, Dad, will you do my wedding? There was no way I could have said no to my son. Not that I wanted to say no. I really wanted to do his wedding. That's a a special honor when pastor's kids ask their parents to do weddings for them but it was also for me that moment when I had to walk the walk and not just talk the talk because had I said no to him, it would have negated all those affirmations I had ever given him. And it would have pushed him even further away from the church as this church doctrine did that he learned about that we have in the United Methodist Church's Book of Discipline. And so I had to come to terms with performing this wedding and being a united Methodist minister at the same time. I knew that the Book of Discipline had a prohibition in it. I could not legally, according to the Book of Discipline, perform this wedding. But I came to the conclusion that, that I had to perform his wedding even if it meant that I would lose my job and my career and my credentials. As many of you know, it actually took six years before I finally faced a complaint on this. 26 days before the Statue of Limitations uh, would have kicked in. But you know what? I faced this trial and I went through this trial and it sort of reminds me of what Peter went through as well because this passage we just read was actually a part of Peter's statement to the Council of Jerusalem, which was sort of a trial. And it was all over Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christian fathers wanted to know how come that there were Gentile Christians who were not eating kosher food and who were not being circumcised. And Peter stands before this court and shares about his personal experience with Cornelius, the centurion, and his family, and how he saw the Holy Spirit descending upon this family and changing these people and making them into Christians. And so I faced the trial. And I tried to convey to the court that what I did was an act of love for my son. I could not pass by on the other side of the road like the priest and the Levite did in the parable of the Good Samaritan, but I had to attend to my son. He was hurt. He had been hurt by the doctrine of the church, and I could not say no to him, to his request. You know, there was a point in the trial when I made a realization. I had been counseled by my lawyers and by my counsels to be very diplomatic and to just keep the focus on the act of love that I had performed for my son. But on the second day of the trial, when I, right before I was supposed to take the witness stand again, I knew I could not make this political and very diplomatic statement. My counsels had said to me, if they ask you in the stand, will you ever perform a gay marriage again, you say something like, I can't answer that question. It's impossible to answer that question. It's a hypothetical question based on an action in the future, and it all depends, so I really cannot answer this question. I was supposed to avoid and somehow not come across as rebellious, But I knew in my heart that I had to make a stand on that day, not only for my son, Tim, and for my two other gay children, but for all of our LGBT brothers and sisters within the church. So many of them had in the meantime contacted me, written me letters and Facebook messages and emails, telling me their story of how they had been harmed by the doctrine of the church. And those stories were horrendous. And I had to think of those. And I thought, you know what? I can't just be diplomatic. I have to tell this trial court and my jury and the judge and everybody, the whole world, that this is wrong, that we have to stop harming beloved children of God. But it was a hard decision and, and I was very fearful. I did not want to lose my job. I did not want to lose my security. That's one of the nice things we have in the, in the United Methodist Church. We have a guaranteed appointment, which really gives us a lot of security. Our families uh, profit from that as well. So during the lunch break, I went to, into my room in the cabin at Campanaba where the trial was happening. And I sat on my bunk bed and I prayed. And I said to God, God, is this something that I must do? Is this something you want me to do? To tell the church that this has to stop? And God, if if this is what you want me to do, what am I going to do if I lose my job and my career? If they take my credentials? What about my security? What about my paycheck? What am I going to do tomorrow? I have two Boys still in school and I have to support them. How am I going to do that? What about my health insurance? What about all of those things? And it was at that moment when when God redirected my thoughts to what happened on the cross, when Jesus performed the biggest act of love that has ever been performed. He didn't just give up his career and his security. Jesus gave his whole life life, and he did it with such grandeur and grace, because as he saw those Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross, the very same people that put him there, that nailed him to that cross, he prayed. He prayed to the Father and said, Father, forgive them, but they do not know what they do. And as I was considering all of that, all of a sudden, giving up my career didn't seem such a big deal any longer. And I knew what I had to do. But I was still very nervous. I remember sitting in, in this makeshift courtroom which was actually a gymnasium of a United Methodist camp. And I, I remember sitting there and I was going to be called up to the witness stand and I started to, to write down words and sentences because, because I wasn't really prepared and, and I was so nervous I didn't know if those words were going to come out or not. And and I remember just feeling sick to my stomach. That's how nervous I was. And you know, when you feel that way, you're not very confident. You feel weak. And I was called into the stand, and, and I just left that piece of paper there because I couldn't even read my handwriting. That's how nervous I was. And I sat down in the stand, and something incredible happened. I looked over to where my family was sitting, just where they sit now. And I I saw their love and their support in their eyes. I had never heard the words, I am so proud of you, that came from their mouths during this time. I had never heard that many affirmations from them. And, And I looked beyond them and I saw a sea of people draped in rainbow colored stoles. And I knew they were supporters. There were so many supporters in that courtroom that they didn't just sit on my side, on the defensive side of the courtroom. They sat on the church councils, the prosecution side of the, of the room as well. And I, and I saw in their eyes that they were looking intently at me and with love and support, and it was almost like I could feel their prayers at that moment, and strength came back into me. And, and I was just amazed. I was totally amazed at the words that came out of my mouth as I was addressing the jury, about 13 pastors sitting over in this area, and as I addressed them in my final testimony, I was blown away by the words that came out of my mouth. The very first thing that I did when I got the official transcript of the trial, I went back to that speech to see, did I remember this right? Did those words really come out that way? And they sure did. And I would actually like to read to you um, some of those words that I shared. But before I read those words, I'd like to read a scripture to you from Mark 13, 11. And this is really what I experienced at that moment, where it says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, I never thought that was going to be a church trial, but do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And this is what I said to to the 13 jurors who were seated over here. I said, so before you make a decision, please know that I will continue to minister to all people equally, regardless of their gender, nationality, race, social status, economic status, or sexual orientation. And my message is going to be that we as a church and as individuals need to stop judging people based on their sexual orientation or anything else. We have to stop the hate speech. We have to stop treating them as second-class Christians. We have to stop harming beloved children of God. We have to reach out to them and treat them as Jesus would have treated them. And that's going to be my message. And at that moment, I took out a rainbow-colored stole, which this is the actual stole that I used. It was given to me the day before by my attorney. It was his wife's, and she wanted me to have it. It Has her name in it, Ann Ewing. It's right here. And I said to the trial court, you know, I don't think things happen by chance. I was given this stole, and it's a rainbow-colored stole. And I want to put this on me as I make a vow to never be silent again. And I said to the trial court, to the jury, I said, this is a symbol of who I will have to be from now on, an advocate for the LGBT community within the church and beyond. And that is all I have to say. Something incredible happened at that moment. As I was dismissed from the witness stand and I was seated in my seat, I felt at peace with God and the world and myself. I had no more fear of losing anything. Whether they took my credentials or whether they would have stoned me to death, I had no fear of anything. It was what first john 4 18 says perfect love will drive out all fear that's what i had experienced at that moment and something else happened that was even more incredible and that is that as i was defrocked about a month later they gave me 30 days to recant what were they thinking after that speech i don't know <laughs> <laughs> But something else happened that is so incredible. After I was defrocked, a day later, the very next day, Bishop Minerva Carcano from the CalPAC conference called me on my cell phone. I was in New York at the time, in New York City. And I said, who is this? This is Bishop Carcano from the CalPAC conference. And I want you to know, she said, that I have talked with ministers in my conference and with my cabinet. And we all agree that what you did was in the spirit of Jesus, and we want to invite you to come to our conference and be a United Methodist minister. I said to her, Bishop, you didn't just make my day. You made my life. You have no idea how much this means to me, to be invited back by the very church that had on the previous day rejected after 20 years of of service. And something else happened. I I received phone calls from from many, many churches, most of them, believe it or not, United Methodist Churches. And I got to know the reconciling part of the United Methodist Church and and the open and affirming part of the the UCC and, and of the American Baptist Church and of the MCC Church. And it restored my faith and the faith of my family in the church of Jesus Christ. Because there is always a true part of the church of Jesus Christ, a representation of Jesus Christ on the earth. And the reconciling part of the church is that church. And it has restored our faith in the church, it has become a healing moment for our family because there was one point when I thought to myself, if I get defrocked, will I ever set foot into a church again? Well, the reconciling part of the church has changed that question and answered that question for me and for my family. And so I am so thankful, so thankful to still be used by God as a minister as I still feel that calling in my heart, and to be able to bring along with Peter and so many others in our faithful scriptures the message to please, please draw the circle ever wider until all of God's beloved children are included in our church. For heaven's sakes, God is not a boring God. God is an exciting God who, who made creation so in such manifold diversity. Not one snowflake is like the other. Not one person is like the other. God wanted us to enjoy each other, not just our similarities, but our differences. And He wants us all to get together and have a great party together as we worship our one creator. In Jesus' name, amen.